to episode 38 of the podcast History Does You. Today we'll be talking about isolationism and we had an interview with Dr. Charles Cuppen, which I think will be super interesting. I always enjoy interviewing people that have worked in government who are kind of in the foreign policy realm and kind of learn about kind of the way they look at history as a means to both understand what is happening now, how to kind of develop policy that they think is going to be most effective, all those sorts of things. Again, I think there's always that great saying, Mark Twain saying, history, it doesn't repeat, it rhymes. So it doesn't go in this exact fashion that people assume it does, but rather there are similarities that you can kind of look at. And particularly with this episode, I think it's super interesting because we're at this weird time, particularly with American foreign policy, where you have sort of this changing of the guard under Donald Trump. Obviously, we had the election, so it could change. But basically, this idea that this sort of internationalism approach that we've taken since the end of World War II doesn't work, and it's not a problem, and we shouldn't do that. And at least in my lifetime, born in 1999, that's pretty much been the status quo, that we go out and try and solve the world's problems and make it safer for everyone. But right now, particularly with, I think, in part with the Trump presidency is this wider backlash towards, yeah, this isn't working. We're wasting lives over in overseas wars. We have troops deployed and bases everywhere. And it's just not, why are we doing this? But you can look at American foreign policy history or diplomatic history and see that, generally speaking, that sort of attitude has really been the norm, that politicians and in general people think that or thought that getting involved overseas, either with alliances or as war, was counterproductive and always never good, never really came out of it. So I think it's always interesting to kind of look at those two things. And it's really insightful just in terms of how attitudes kind of change, how wars influence the way Americans think, especially just with World War II, with Pearl Harbor, that super consequential event where we were openly attacked by a foreign power. And even though it wasn't the mainland US, there was always this belief that, well, we have two big oceans that protect us. There isn't really a great power in the Western hemisphere that can interfere with us or invade us or whatnot. We can't rely on these two oceans to protect us. We have to go out and project American power in ways that are effective in the minds of different politicians and stuff. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. We kind of speed through 200 50 years-ish of American foreign policy history, but I think he highlights a lot of those critical moments and a lot of those important moments that I think kind of lead to where American foreign policy has been, where it is now, and ultimately where it's going. So I definitely hope you enjoy the episode. It's a great interview. On today's episode, we are very lucky to welcome on Dr. Charles Kupchin. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and professor of international affairs at Georgetown University. From 2014 to 2017, he served as special assistant to the president and senior director for European affairs on the staff of the National Security Council in the Obama administration. He's also director for European affairs on the NSC during the first Clinton administration. Before joining the Clinton NSC, he worked in the U.S. Department of State on the policy planning staff. He's also the author of several books, including No One's World, The Rising Rest, and The Coming Global Turn, How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, and he recently wrote Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself in the World, which we'll be talking about today. So welcome on. Glad to be with you, Riley. 
And to start off, what is your favorite subject of either history or foreign policy to research and talk about? Why is your favorite and how did you become interested in isolationism and American foreign policy? Well, I'm an uh, international relations specialist, which means that I was trained in political science and not in history, but I'm someone who relies heavily on history in my work and in particular on uh, comparative case studies. And I would say until the book that we're discussing today, most of my work was on other countries. I've done a lot of work on European history, How Enemies Become Friends was a book of looking at 20 different historical instances of longstanding rivalries ending in friendship. This is the first book that I have devoted exclusively to the United States and to U.S. diplomatic history and grand strategy. And I wrote the book really going, I think I'd have to go back to the 1990s. You mentioned that I was working on the National Security Council then under President Clinton. And I began to wonder whether the United States was not losing its appetite for a robust brand of internationalism that it had adopted in the 1940s. And I began to think that because after the Berlin Wall came down and the Cold War ended, coverage of foreign affairs in newspapers and magazines and TV and radio plummeted. President Clinton was reluctant to get involved in the Balkans, despite the bloodshed that was taking place there. And then in the 1994 midterms, the Republicans and the Democrats really began to part ways, not just on domestic policy, where they had always had differences, but also on foreign policy. And so I said to myself, you know, something's changing here in this country. Maybe I should go back and explore what the country was like before 1941, because that may give me insight into where we could be headed today. Then we got 9-11, and that whole inward turn stops in its tracks. And the country is riveted by Afghanistan and Iraq and violent extremism, and we're going to war again. But that enthusiasm for the projection of American power starts to trail off again when the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and then Libya don't go so well. And that's when I said, you know what, I am going to write a book about isolationism and explore this tradition in American foreign policy, because I see signs that it might be coming back. So I really started to write the book in earnest around 2012. Then I go into the Obama administration, put the book aside, but witness a president who's struggling with this question of what should America's role in the world be. And he was, in my mind, a retrenchment president who wanted to get out of the Middle East, but had a very hard time doing so because the Islamic State came back or came around in Iraq and Syria. Afghanistan wasn't going so well. And then Donald Trump gets elected. And what does he say on Inauguration Day? He says, from this day forward, it's going to be America first. Where did that phrase America first come from? It came from the America First Committee, founded in 1940, to block the U.S. from entering World War II. So all of a sudden, we have a president who not only has isolationist inclinations, but on, in his inaugural address goes back and reaches to the most infamous, in some ways, isolationist group in American history. So that's kind of the longer version of how, why, when I started to write this book. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered either in government or just kind of in your career in general? The challenges in government and the challenges as a scholar are quite different. I would say as a scholar, as an academic who writes books, 
the biggest challenge is discipline. Writing books is a heavy lift. This book that we're talking about today is almost 500 pages. I didn't know what I was getting into when I started to write it, in part because there were episodes in American history that I didn't even know about that I needed to probe. The big debates over whether to annex various islands in the Caribbean in the 19th century, whether to annex Hawaii, Samoa, Midway Islands, all of these very interesting little kernels of insight into America's history and politics, I didn't even know were out there. And so I ended up having to really delve into a set of historical adventures, if you will, that I didn't know about. And it takes time and it takes discipline. And I've got three little kids at home and sort of writing a book with three little kids around is particularly challenging because there are lots of joyful distractions. I would say the biggest challenge in the government, especially for someone who comes in from the outside, like myself, how to operate most effectively. Because operating in the National Security Council and operating at Georgetown are two very different kettles of fish. And especially my second case, in my first stint in the NSC, I started pretty much at the beginning, first term. In the case of the Obama administration, I started in 2014, so well into the second term. And as a consequence, it's a little bit like parachuting onto a highway where everyone is driving at 100 miles an hour, and there's no manual. Nobody takes you aside and says, this is what you do on a daily basis. This is who you call. This is how you operate. You literally spend your first month there dodging incoming and trying to figure out how to operate on a daily basis. And before getting into specific episodes of isolation in the United States, can you kind of describe what isolationism is? Is it a strategy, a policy, or an ideology in your mind? Well, isolationism is a loaded word. Respects became a dirty word on December 7, 1941, when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. And ever since then, it's generally deployed as an insult. Someone, an isolationist, when you think that they want to stick their heads in the sand and run away in a delusional manner. What I try to do in the book is very narrowly define isolationism as a strategic doctrine, which in the case of the United States basically said, we will not take on strategic commitments outside North America. That is to say, we are not going abroad and extending our strategic reach. We will tend our own garden. We will stay out of other people's hair and they will stay out of our hair. Now, the U.S. was very engaged in the world from day one. Avid commercial expansionists looking for new markets all over the world. The United States was very expansionist in North America. The story of the 19th century is really the story of America's push from 13 colonies across all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And we grabbed a bunch of land from Mexico along the way and tried several times to take over Canada unsuccessfully. But even though many people would say, well, that doesn't sound isolationist to me, I, at the very beginning of the book, say, listen, let's just, I'm going to put out this definition and let's operate according to that definition. And again, it is whether or not the United States is to prepare to take on enduring strategic commitments outside of North America. I stress the word enduring because over the course of the 19th century, the United States did send its forces abroad many times, but they did so with a very narrow objective, and that was to defend 
the interests of American citizens and traders. So this was not opening a military base in Germany or putting U.S. forces in Okinawa for the next 80 years. This was a short-term deployment of force to defend economic interests. And to kind of get in the beginning of the United States, in the aftermath of the revolution, how did some of the early leaders and founders think about foreign policy? Was isolationism kind of a defined doctrine at that time? The word isolation didn't really come into modern usage until the end of the 19th century and really didn't become that common until the 1930s. But George Washington in his farewell address, which was 1796, basically laid out the strategic doctrine that I'm talking about. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, the great rule of conduct for the United States when it comes to foreign relations is commercial relations with everyone, political connections to no one. In Jefferson's phraseology, no entangling alliances. So different founders use different phrases. And one of the reasons they didn't use the word isolation is the U.S. wasn't isolated back then. The U.S. was surrounded by hostile powers, the British, the French, the Spanish, Native Americans. And as a consequence, there was no sense that we were enjoying this natural security all by ourselves in North America. But what the founders envisaged was a long-term strategy that would enable the United States to security. And that long-term strategy really involved two things, easing, or in some cases, pushing European powers first out of North America and then out of the Western Hemisphere. And then number two, expanding westward with white settlement moving from east to west, pushing out of the way Native Americans, grabbing land from Mexico, and effectively establishing a North American redoubt that spanned from the Pacific coast to the Atlantic coast. And the founders basically said that that would then allow us to enjoy the natural security that comes from large flanking oceans to the east and west and nice, relatively weaker neighbors to the north and south. So the strategy really consisted of two things, get European imperial powers out of our neighborhood and expand westward so that we no longer faced a land threat from Native Americans or anyone else. And the War of 1812 comes along later. Was that the first kind of push to kind of try and move out those European powers? And did its outcome sort of reinforce the fear of being involved with potentially more powerful overseas opponents? I think that the first push was the Revolutionary War, where the United States basically said, you know, we want to be a free and independent nation. And I'll tell a quick story about that period that will help listeners understand how profound the sort of isolationist, non-entanglement, unilateralist impulse was. In 1778, the war was not going well. In fact, the United States was losing. And even though the founders were very reluctant to do so, they formed a military alliance with France because they took that alliance to be the only option to win the war. The U.S. needed help. And the French obliged, and they came over with arms and ships and troops, and they turned the war around. And the United States won with the help of the French. Had it not been for the French, you and I may be conducting this conversation with British accents. 
we may still be a colony. So anyway, we begin life as an independent country from first to confederation and then after 1789, a federation. And then in 1793, Britain and France go to war again. And the French king has George Washington on his speed dial and he calls George and he says, George, remember that alliance that we signed in 1778 to save you from destruction by the Redcoats? Well, we need your help now. It's time for you to reciprocate because we're at war again with the British. And that alliance was not time specific. It still was in effect. And George Washington hung up the phone obviously metaphorically, and issued the Proclamation of Neutrality, in which he basically said to the French, good night and good luck, you're on your own. And that was the last alliance that the United States had until after World War II. So from 1793, when we reneged, I mean, it really was an act of infidelity, reneged on that alliance until after World War II, the U.S. did not want to tether itself to other countries. And then even though we kind of won the war, we were still entangled primarily with the British because the French, after they lost Haiti, began to move out of the hemisphere. And the United States bought the Louisiana Purchase. So they were kind of clearing out in the early part of the 19th century. And then the real turning point where we begin to enjoy what I would call natural security was after the War of 1812, which did not go particularly well. I would say it was a draw. Keep in mind that the British burned down the White House. But effectively, the treaty led to a situation in which the British stopped interfering with American seaborne trade, and they removed their last troops from the Northwest Territories. They had left some troops that were seen as a threat by Americans, and they removed those after 1812. And they had been, prior to that time, arming and supporting Native Americans to try to prevent westward expansion. And so it's really after 1812 that the United States has a relatively free hand and begins to envisage a union that would start expanding steadily to the West. And something that you know later comes along is the Monroe Doctrine. Where does that kind of fit in terms of the U.S. kind of defining this sort of restrained foreign policy and kind of What was the contribution of the Monroe Doctrine to all of that? Well, one of the things that I learned when I wrote the book, and it was an eye-opener for me, I went to graduate school in the 1980s. And so I grew up in a Cold War environment. I knew a lot about American diplomatic history, starting with 1941 at Pearl Harbor. But going back and reading the nation's history prior to that was really quite an eye-opener for me. And I think it will be for many Americans. One of the reasons I wrote the book is I think Americans need to know this story. They need to know what the country was doing or not doing in the world prior to 1941, just as they need to know what we've been doing since then. But another revelation that I had was that some of the inherited wisdom is not particularly accurate in the sense that I saw the Monroe Doctrine as this turning point in which the United States declared effective hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. That's kind of its common understanding. Well, guess what? It was hot air. Basically, what happened is that the British, after the Spanish began to lose their imperial footholds in Latin America, came over and said to the United States, why don't we team up to prevent the Spanish from coming back and trying to reestablish empire. 
And the United States kind of liked the idea, but didn't want to do anything in cooperation with the British. Again, this kind of unilateralist, isolationist, we don't want to hitch our wagon to anybody. So instead, Monroe gives this speech in which he says, no new empire in the Western Hemisphere. He didn't say no imperial possessions. He didn't say that the Spanish and the British had to leave. He just said, we don't want them to come back. Did he do anything about it? No. Did the U.S. really lift a finger until the end of the 19th century? No. So it was really a lot of bluster. In fact, a couple of years later, there was a conference in Panama in which the new republics of Latin America were gathering to discuss their relationships and their relationship with Europe, and they invited the United States. And John Quincy Adams, who was, had become president by this point, he had been Monroe's secretary of state, wants to send a delegation of two people. This is just a mere diplomatic conference. And Congress goes berserk because they say this violates the advice of the founders. We want nothing to do with involvement in the politics or diplomacy of Latin America. It would be an insult for Americans to sit at the same table with non-whites, Africans, Latins, Catholics. I mean, there was a lot of racism involved in this. And in the end of the day, Adams was able to twist arms and to convince Congress to approve the delegation. But it took so long and it was so painful that one of the delegates died before getting to Panama, and the other delegate got there so late that the Congress was over. <laughs> so if this is a sign of the great turning point associated with the Monroe Doctrine, I think we better think again. Mm-hmm. And to kind of move ahead, you have obviously the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, which leads to the expansion of territory. But I wanted to ask about the American Civil War. Did that have any effect on sort of the idea of isolationism or kind of the thinking about America's place in the world? Or did it sort of just kind of the status quo remain? Well, number one, there was a reconfirmation of the desire that the United States needs to sever itself geopolitically from Europe. And that's because even though the Europeans declared neutrality, they actually supported the South. And they supported the South because they felt that if the South succeeded in breaking away, there would be two Americas. And two Americas would be better than one America because the strength of the country would be divided between two nations. And that obviously left the Union unhappy because the British ended up sending quite a few ships to the South. Those ships ended up sinking Union ships and killing sailors. And so at the end of the war, Seward, who was Lincoln's Secretary of State, said to the British, please now transfer to us Canada as compensation for the fact that you ended up killing a lot of Union soldiers and costing us a lot of money. And the British refused, but they did end up compensating. I think they paid 15 million, if I remember correctly, in compensation for that. It kind of confirmed the sense that the best course for the United States was really to disentangle itself from the geopolitics of Europe and great powers in general. And the other move that occurred at roughly the same time was the purchase of Alaska from Russia which was again about pushing European powers out of the broader American neighborhood. One other point that's important here is that, you know, part of this isolationist era in the 19th century was about American exceptionalism. 
and the degree to which the American people and their elected leaders thought the U.S. was engaged in a bold and unique experiment in political liberty. But unlike today, when American exceptionalism is in some ways the ideological justification for going out in the world, for most of American history, it was the opposite. It was, we need to preserve and protect the American experiment by keeping the outside world at bay. Because if we aspire to geopolitical ambition, we will pursue that ambition at the expense of domestic liberty and prosperity. We will end up playing by the same rules as Europe's great powers when we don't want to. We want to be a light unto the nations. We want to follow enlightenment rules, not balance of power rules. And that sort of strength of exceptionalism, the strength of the exceptionalist narrative was intensified after the Civil War because there was a kind of sense of the abolition of slavery being associated with a progressive enlightenment agenda. And that then fed into what came to be called manifest destiny, that the United States needs to continue to spread its message throughout the rest of the continent. And it was really after the Civil War that the United States takes off economically, basically turning from a bit player, if you will, in a global sense, to one of the world leading economic powers by the end of the 19th century. And obviously, you mentioned America's economic growth as kind of the 20th century approach as the economy grew and its population grew. Did its ambitions in the world kind of change for Americans? Were there politicians or officials that were beginning to advocate for a more kind of expansionist or aggressive foreign policy? Or, yeah. Well, Isolationism was to American politics back then what internationalism is today. And what I mean by that is that those people who were calling for the United States to sort of go out in the world and project its power abroad, they were the ones that were at the margins. They were the political pariahs. There were such voices. Henry Clay, for example, was in the 1820s an advocate of getting much more involved in supporting Republican causes in Latin America. In the 1840s, there were a series of revolutions in Europe, and some voices said, we should get involved and we should send aid because this is part of who we are. But they failed. And then there were also numerous runs at annexing new territory, Cuba, Haiti, Santo Domingo, the Virgin Islands, various chunks of Latin America. Hawaii. Seward was interested in looking at Greenland and Iceland, right? So there was this broader view, but none of those efforts really were able to gain much steam until the 1890s. That's when you really begin to see the light bulb go on. And in particular, the narrative that was in some ways launched by a historian named Frederick Jackson Turner about the closing of the American frontier. There was a sense that the U.S. had completed its mission. It had made it to the Pacific coast. It had built an expansive union, yet remained a democracy and a liberal democracy. And now that the frontier had closed, the risk was that America would lose its dynamism because the frontier had been the place where adventurism and discovery and wealth and individualism and democracy had flourished. And That narrative then led to a decisive turn over the course of the 1890s toward taking manifest destiny abroad. 
And in the first instance, that turn took the form of the construction of battleships, because up until the 1890s, the United States maintained a small navy that consisted mainly of ships capable of commerce protection and coastal protection. As I mentioned, the U.S. often deployed its forces abroad, but basically to protect trade. In the 1890s, battleships started to appear. And initially, Congress was quite skeptical. And they said, well, what do we need battleships for? You need battleships to play the game of great power politics. You need battleships to project power thousands of miles away. We don't need battleships. And in part, what happened to avoid that objection is that the proponents of a blue water navy called these new vessels coastline battleships because they knew that if they just called them regular battleships, they might not pass. So we built some coastline battleships and then we built some real battleships. And then in 1898, we used those battleships to pick a fight with Spain, kick them out of Cuba and proceed to establish effectively as military outposts, military occupation, Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Guam, the Wake Islands, Samoa. And while we're at it, we annex Hawaii. So as you can tell, what happened was that the sort of dam broke and a war that was about kicking the Spanish out of Cuba because of a bloody crackdown that was taking place there turned into America's imperial moment, which didn't go so well because the United States effectively colonized the Philippines after it booted out the Spanish. A terrible insurgency broke out against military rule. 4,000 Americans died. Hundreds of thousands of Filipinos died. And Americans said, what the heck is going on here? We were told that we were going to kick the Spanish out of Cuba in the name of manifest destiny. And now we have become military occupiers of the Philippines. And that then leads to the backlash and the turn back toward isolationism that occurs after 1898. And that turn back towards isolationism, I wanted to ask about World War I, because as tensions built between kind of the European powers, did the US try to stay away or did they take steps to kind of strengthen its military or insulate itself from any potential conflict? Well, after McKinley, who launched the Spanish-American War, you get Roosevelt, Teddy, who was as keen about empire and expansionism as McKinley. But he essentially sees there isn't support for that among the American public. So he starts to pull back from Asia in particular, where the United States had been quite active, but maintains a pretty tight grip over the Western hemisphere. Right, 1898 is the beginning of a long era of US intervention in Latin America, which some would say continues to this day, but certainly continued right through into the 1930s. And then during the Cold War, obvious instances of US intervention in the region. But from Asia and Europe, the United States basically pulled back and we got to what's called dollar diplomacy under Taft. And dollar diplomacy was really going back to the 19th century, which was let's avoid strategic entanglement and focus on trade. Then Wilson gets elected and he essentially overcorrects for the mistakes of McKinley, right? McKinley was the kind of open realist. We are expanding to increase American power. And Wilson says, we will enter World War I, but 
we have no realist ambition. This is not about power. This is about democracy, keeping the world safe for democracy. And I would also point out that during 1914, 1915, 1916, Wilson was a hardcore isolationist, right? Because the war breaks out in the summer of 1914. The United States doesn't enter until 1917. And during those interim years, Wilson basically said, we don't have a dog in this fight. We don't have an interest. We need to remain an island of reason and democracy and let the Europeans fight it out. And then the Germans begin to sink American ships that are crossing the Atlantic because Wilson defended traditional neutrality. And traditional neutrality is that the U.S. can continue to trade as a neutral country. So it's after U.S. ships get sunk that Wilson enters the war. And then after the end of the war, which the United States won, he says, we're going to enter the League of Nations. We're going to stay engaged abroad to make sure that this kind of war never happens again. Well, that kind of brand of idealism was no more attractive than McKinley's realism. And the idea that we were fighting for democracy in Europe didn't jive well with the fact that Americans were dying in the trenches. So what happens is that you get another turn inward and another isolationist backlash. The Senate votes three times on U.S. entry into the League of Nations. Each time, the answer is no. Wilson then says, well, since the problem is the Senate, I'm going to take my case to the American people. And he says that the election of 1920 will be a referendum on American internationalism. And the Republican candidate, Senator Warren Harding, said, bring it on. I stand for the policies of George Washington. I stand for nationalism, not globalism. I am against entangling alliances. And he ran on that platform. Wilson's candidate, James Cox from Ohio, was part of the Wilsonian agenda. Harding cleaned his clock, one of the most lopsided elections in American history. So Americans basically said, we much prefer the policies of George Washington to the policies of Woodrow Wilson. And that really sets the stage for the strategic retreat of the interwar era. And going to World War II, where we see this big shift. In the lead up to the war, how did Franklin Roosevelt go about trying to deal with the kind of America first politicians who didn't want anything to do with another overseas war? I mentioned that I was kind of surprised about my prior understanding of the Monroe Doctrine. It was a big deal. It turns out you look at it, it was kind of hot air. But Roosevelt, I had a kind of similar revelation in the sense that he is, in the American imagination, a larger-than-life figure for two reasons. One, the New Deal, and two, great wartime leader. What I didn't know is that throughout the 1930s, right up until Pearl Harbor, he was part of the isolationist mainstream. And from 35 right through 39, he was part of a group of politicians that shepherded a series of neutrality laws through Congress that basically detached the United States from belligerents, not just geopolitically, but commercially. So this was a new brand of neutrality because the Americans, including Roosevelt, said, we're not going to let happen in World War I happen again, i.e., we're not going to start trading with belligerents, have our ships sunk, and then have to enter the war. And as a consequence, the U.S. really did pull back and cordon itself off from trouble in Europe and Asia. 
And there was trouble, right? Keep in mind that Hitler's in Germany. Germany has basically torn up the Versailles Treaty, Anschluss, occupation of Austria in 1938. Japan invades Manchuria in 31, then goes into much of the rest of China in 37. So basically the world is in flames and the United States is backing away further and further and further saying, hey, we want nothing to do with this. Roosevelt finally changes his tune in 1939 because he fears that if Britain were to fall eventually, that Germany would be so strong that it could eventually come across the Atlantic and imperil the United States. And that's when he begins to back away from strict neutrality and introduce what was called cash and carry. And that was if the British or other associated or allied countries come with their own ships and pay cash, we will sell them goods, including military items. But that still was quite restrictive, right? They had to bring their own ships and they had to pay in cash. And that then is what starts the movement toward the America First Committee, which is to block Roosevelt from aiding countries that were the victims of fascism and Nazism because they felt that this was a slippery slope to war. And the America First Committee opened its doors in 1940. It had about 800,000 members. It had over 400 chapters, and it was very influential. And Roosevelt eventually went from cash and carry to lend-lease, in which he began to provide excess military equipment to the victims of the Nazis and the Japanese. And he began, after that, to enable the United States Navy to patrol the Atlantic up to a certain point to help ships that were going across make it across saying where the German submarines were and that kind of stuff. And he was in a heated battle with America First Committee, who were strongly opposed to these policies and believed that the United States should stick to a policy of hemispheric isolation. Some historians believe that Roosevelt was trying to back the United States into the war. It is to say, he was deliberately giving assistance so that ultimately somebody would attack the United States and then we would have to go to war. I found no evidence to that. In fact, the contrary. If you look at what he was saying and what he was doing, he was supplying assistance to others so that they could defend themselves so that the United States wouldn't have to get involved in the war. And he, in fact, stuck to that strategy because it wasn't until Japan brought war to the United States that Roosevelt decided to enter the war. And then everything changes. The America First Committee closes its doors. The resolution, declaration of war against Japan, and then later against Germany and Italy was overwhelming. And so the country then unified as it went to war. Mm -hmm. And obviously, World War II ends with a victory of the United States, probably the only really allied country that not be touched by the war in the sense that it wasn't bombed, that wasn't invaded. What motivated the U.S. to then pursue this idealist internationalism, as you called it, rather than the isolationist policies that had been the norm for many decades to that point? Well, just one quick factual correction. We were bombed, and that was Pearl Harbor, right? And so had it not been for that attack, we may never have entered World War II. No one will know. But that day, December 7, 1941, changed America, and it more or less silenced the isolationists for the next 70 plus years. And 
effectively what Roosevelt did after Pearl Harbor is he married the realist tradition of McKinley with the idealist tradition of Wilson to create what came to be called liberal internationalism, which is the United States would project its power abroad, but in the context of international partnership and multilateralism. And it also completely revised the exceptionalist narrative. The exceptionalist narrative up to that point had been, we need to protect the American experiment by staying aloof from the world. Starting in 1941, it became, we need to make the world safe for American engagement because standing aloof doesn't work. And that's when you begin to see the effort to go out and not just defeat adversaries, but remake them. And we did remake them successfully. We defeated Nazi Germany. We defeated Italy. We defeated Japan and helped turn them into constitutional liberal democracies. And that then really set the stage for the Cold War and for the formation of a bipartisan compact behind this new brand of American internationalism, which stayed pretty strong right through the end of the Cold War. The isolationists started to make a comeback in the late 1940s as the Cold War heated up in response to the Truman Doctrine, which was an effort to provide increased assistance to Greece and Turkey to prevent communist inroads. And then you get the Korean War, and then you get Truman's decision to deploy, I think it was three divisions to Europe, in some ways in response to the Korean War. And the isolationists are coming back and saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We are getting way in over our heads. And there were various efforts to pass legislation that would tie the hands of the administration when it comes to international agreements and deploying forces. Those legislative initiatives were defeated. And I would say the isolationists made their last gasp around 1953, 1954, and that they were more or less pushed to the margins for the balance of the 20th century, even though there was a kind of obviously a big debate in response to the Vietnam War. But the isolationists never really got traction after Vietnam. I would say the main impulse was retrenchment. Let's pull back. Let's let others do a greater share of the fighting. But because the Cold War was still going on, there really was no serious debate about a global pullback. It was much more about pulling back from Vietnam. And outside of that episode in Vietnam, you mentioned that there wasn't really any loss of confidence in this internationalism. In terms of the end of the Cold War, did the quote-unquote victory in the Cold War reinforce this idea that this liberal internationalism was the right way to kind of approach the world? And do you think it led to this kind of ultimately, I think, kind of an overreach in American power? Yes, that is an accurate description of the story that I tell in the book, in which the U.S. prevails in the Cold War, the Soviet Union implodes, and the U.S. then tries to take the Western order and universalize it. NATO expands, Russia joins the G7, China joins the World Trade Organization. And there really is a sense that, as Frank Fukuyama, a fellow political scientist, put it, history was coming to an end. Ideological convergence was taking place. And so I think there was ideological overreach as a consequence of that triumphalism. And then after 9-11, strategic overreach. 
The two went hand in hand. And the strategic overreach after 9-11 was in part ideological in the sense that I do believe that the neoconservatives who helped orchestrate the Iraq war during George W. Bush's presidency believed that they were taking action that would bring liberal democracy to Iraq and to the rest of the Middle East. That's not quite what happened. The Iraq war started a period of instability in the region that we continue to live with today. And in many respects, it is the overreach that began in the 1990s and that was intensified after 9-11 that to me explains where we are today. And where we are today is, in my mind, a swing of the pendulum back, not toward isolationism of the sort that we saw in the 19th century, but the isolationist impulse is now part of the American narrative in the way it wasn't before. It started under Obama. He ran for re-election in 2012, saying it's time for nation building here at home. He desperately wanted to get out of the Middle East, but was unable to do so in part because of the Islamic State. He needed to go back into Iraq, into Syria, and in part because Afghanistan didn't go as he had expected, right? So he was quite frustrated. And then Trump, in part because the retrenchment under Obama didn't go so well, he then runs on this new America first agenda, which is in part about pulling out of the Middle East and other parts of the world. He has been a not so subtle isolationist and unilateralist really going back to strains in American foreign policy that are much more reminiscent of pre-Pearl Harbor than post-Pearl Harbor American foreign policy. And in fact, when Trump came into office and I was already writing this book, I was struck by the degree to which the isolationist, unilateralist, protectionist, racist elements of his policy resonated so strongly with elements from early American history. And I don't think that he was sitting in the Oval Office reading history books, because as far as we know, he doesn't read a lot of history books. But I think what he was doing was tapping into this different strain in the American experience, in American political culture, a strain that runs stronger in the parts of the country that support him than in the parts of the country that are blue, that are pro-democratic. That is to say, less keen on globalization, less keen on projecting American power abroad. And so Trump has really presided over a country that was turning inward when he came into office and is now turning even further inward because of the pandemic and the degree to which economic dislocation has led to a profound sense of the need to focus on the home front. And so it's no accident in my mind that as he has run for re-election, Trump has been pulling troops out of Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, and Germany, because he wants to say to the American people, I hear you. I told you I was going to bring the troops home, and I'm going to bring the troops home. And in general, do you think President Trump is an aberration, or do you think he has officially changed American foreign policy, at least for the next couple of decades? I think Trump is an aberration. I hope Trump is an aberration less because of his specific policies and more because of his style and his disregard for finer democratic traditions. I never thought that I would live to see the day where an American president openly fuels racist fires, openly insults minorities, openly 
says, I'm not so sure I'm going to abide by the results of the election, openly calls the free media an enemy of the people, right? I mean, this is not supposed to happen in the United States of America. This is supposed to happen in other countries that don't have democratic traditions, but it's not supposed to happen here. This, to me, is the greatest source of distress, not the trade war with China or some specific piece of his foreign policy. That having been said, I do think we need to harvest lessons from the Trump presidency. And one of those lessons that I take away is that Americans want the country to lighten its load. And there is a debate taking place today about that question. You may have seen in Foreign Affairs Magazine, which is a mouthpiece of the foreign policy establishment, the cover a couple of issues ago was come home America, question mark. Prominent international relations scholars, some of whom you may have heard of, John Mearsheimer, Stephen Walt, Barry Posen, Christopher Lane, some of them may have even been on your podcast. They're now calling for a major pullback. Many of them want the United States to quit Europe. Some want them to leave Asia and go to what's called offshore balancing, where we no longer have a forward presence. Today, there is a new think tank in Washington, here where I live. It's called the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. It was funded by the left, George Soros, and the right, Charles Koch, because left and right are in agreement that our foreign policy has been over-militarized and it is time to cut back. Now, what I argue for in the book is a middle road. I think it would be a huge mistake for the U.S. to leave Europe and Asia. I think we have important missions to fulfill to keep the peace in those two parts of the world. But I do think it's time to end our land wars in the Middle East. I think most of what we need to do outside of Eurasia can be done without major use of military force. It can be done through diplomacy, through assistance, through offshore military platforms. And so I think our main strategic error of late has been fighting unnecessary wars of choice in the Middle East. We've bitten off more than we can chew. So what I would like to see the next president do is not cut and run. It's not go back to the isolationism of the pre-Pearl Harbor era. It is find the middle ground between doing too much and doing too little. Because I think the country has basically gone through two big phases. The isolationist phase until 1941, big time internationalism from 1941 to today. And now it's time to find the sweet spot. The United States has to step back and husband its resources, but not step away from a world that still needs it. And I would also say that today we live in a world that is irretrievably globalized, irretrievably interdependent. And if we're going to effectively tackle climate change, cybersecurity, whatever it is, terrorism, nuclear proliferation, you name the issue, it cannot be done by America alone. The U.S. will have to work with other countries around the world, including countries that are not like-minded. China is going to be the world's largest economy by the end of this decade. We're going to have to learn how to work with China if we're going to tackle the globe's problems. So my plea to Americans is let's find that middle ground. Let's find the equilibrium between doing too much and doing too little. 
And I do think that this is an urgent issue because right now, in my mind, our foreign policy is out of kilter with means and purposes. We are pursuing a grand strategy that no longer supports, enjoys the support of the American public. A recent poll showed that three quarters of the American public want out of the Middle East. That's not Trump's base. That's three quarters of the American public, Democrats and Republicans alike. The Democratic platform calls for getting out of the forever wars and ending policies of regime change. I think politicians need to listen to what the American public is saying. I think the American public remains basically internationalist and wants to stay engaged in the world. But it has to be smart engagement. It has to be pragmatic engagement. That's the way to ensure that the country's role abroad is in sync with and not at odds with public sentiment. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Kupchin. Again, I always really enjoy kind of interviewing people from sort of the foreign policy realm, just to kind of get their takes, how their experiences in government and foreign policy sort of influence the way they look at history, and how history in turn kind of influences where policy should go or things of that nature. And I think we're in this really weird place in terms of foreign policy, where it's the majority of Americans don't like the status quo, which is this liberal internationalism, where you have American forces all over the sea or across the globe. You project power in different ways, whether it's military, economic, cultural, those sorts of things. But all of that has come at a tremendous cost in lives and money, and people are simply fed off of it, and especially with. All these pressing issues, such as climate change, such as the pandemic, such as China and Russia, for example, there's I think this weird moment where there's a chance that American foreign policy can really be changed for the better to meet these different issues. But I think it's about finding sort of middle road, as he described it, not being so over militarized with foreign policy, rather maybe relying more on diplomacy, rather economics, that sort of thing. Again, just as he mentioned. China's rising power, and as we've covered in previous episodes, when a rising power attempts to displace a hegemonic power, usually ends in wars, and that is very bad. But again, there's also again these global issues such as climate change and pandemic that don't really care about borders or countries or whatnot. So there's going to have to be some sort of international cooperation to meet those issues, whether people like it or not. So while I think, in particular, Republicans advocate for this America First policy, I don't think it really works when there are international issues that are going to affect us, no matter what you do. Like you can deploy the Navy to protect whatever, but that's not going to stop climate change. That's not going to stop a pandemic. So. Again, I think things of that nature are going to be really important going forward. And again, I enjoy kind of looking at these issues because I think it's always important to look at history as a tool to kind of go what has succeeded, what has failed. How do we create policies that are most effective, both meaning that there's buy-in from the American people and also that it's effective in solving these different issues. And again, it's very weird. Again, there was a debate last night. I'm recording October 23rd. There was the last debate, and foreign policy wasn't really at the center of debate. It was more or less 
I think there are a couple segments about China and stuff like that, but really there wasn't a lot. But also, I think there again there are two different views, just in terms of there's the Republican Donald Trump doctrine, which is you isolate, you don't get involved, that sort of thing. I think there's some elements of that Democratic side, but there's still I think that establishment type liberal internationalism. But again, I think there, as he mentioned, there is a wider. Strategic rethinking, especially among the, I think, foreign policy establishment, about okay, clearly what we've done in the past hasn't worked. How do we reevaluate, take lessons, and kind of create a new foreign policy? So I think it'll be interesting the outcome of the election, whether it's kind of a reaffirmation of this sort of isolationist foreign policy under Donald Trump, or maybe even a change, a middle of the road of route with Joe Biden. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Definitely, probably one of my favorite interviews of doing it. As always, feel free to send me feedback about guests, whatnot, that sort of things. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.